Welcome to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. We look at the big human rights issues of the day, bringing in new perspectives from all over the world by talking to experts, academics, practicing lawyers, activists, and policymakers who are at the forefront of tackling these difficult issues. I'm Max Harris. I'm Kira Allman. And I'm Laura Hilly. Today's episode Some Sort of Monster The Benefits and Burdens of Human Rights Law for Business. Is business a threat to human rights or an enabler of human rights? Some see business in our world today as a threat. Institutions that undermine workers' rights and interfere with governments. Others see business as an enabler of human rights. Job creators, innovators, supporters of social mobility. So, cutting through these differences, what are the real human rights issues that relate to business? In this episode, We'll explore that question by looking at two discrete issues. First, we'll look at a proposal for a new global treaty that aims to guarantee compliance with human rights by business, making business more responsible for the protection of human rights. Second, we'll look at the flip side, at how businesses are claiming protection and benefiting from human rights, particularly in the United States and in Europe. Meet David Bilschitz, a professor of law at the University of Johannesburg, David is an unusual academic. He's an academic and an activist. He writes and talks about law in order to try to achieve social change. So David, can you illustrate for us some examples where business has fallen short on human rights obligations in your experience? So there are a number of examples. Um, uh, two come to mind. One is in Nigeria where Shell, a uh, major oil corporation, uh, set up oil pipelines across Ogoni land and um, the impact of its work led to major environmental uh, fallout, major environmental pollution, which affected the livelihoods of the people who, were able to, who had been living there for a very long time and they no longer could live off the land. Another interesting example relates to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, in that area, uh, one of the corporations, Anglo Gold Ashanti from South Africa, decided that it, there were very lucrative mineral resources in the eastern part of the DRC and they wanted to go in, but at the time there was a civil war going in. This did not deter them. They started investing in that area, and one day a group of rebels arrive with guns and say, well, you know, you now need to give us vehicles and you need to provide us with thousands of dollars. And uh, the corporation just gave them these things. What was clear was that a few days later there had been various massacres that occurred in the area and it's really possible that a lot of these vehicles and money had been used to actually take part in these atrocities. And so this relationship between business and the environment around it, the civil environment, how it engages, how how it is complicit, how it works together with other actors to create human rights violations, is something that's becoming increasingly a big topic. And businesses should have some responsibility in law in cases like this? Particularly where fundamental rights are at stake. It's not okay simply to assert that businesses voluntarily uh, refrain from violating rights. What's necessary is to actually have a, a more obligatory system, and one that involves reporting, one involves actually strong accountability. And so there has been a lot of discussion around how exactly to impose such obligations upon corporations. We know already 
corporations can't just violate criminal laws. Um, they can't uh, harm someone. They can be sued civilly for doing many of these things. But so, there are many gaps often that exist around the world in relation to these things. When we met David, his enthusiasm for this issue was obvious. His concern comes from personal experience, not only as a lawyer and an academic. He grew up in apartheid South Africa during a time when the country was negotiating a profound political transition, when the whole of South African society was made to look inwards and reflect on its legal, moral and ethical motivations and obligations. I grew up in South Africa uh, during the apartheid system and uh, I went to university as South Africa was becoming a constitutional democracy. And one of the things that was notable about our new constitution and the new vision we had was that all people were going to be treated, of course, equally, but that various agents had, pro had contributed towards propping up the apartheid system. As a result, it was necessary to think about the contribution that various sectors of society played in upholding injustice. And so, for me, I got interested in this area by thinking about how do we ensure that all segments of South African society move in a direction that is consonant with our new constitution and Bill of Rights and that seeks to develop social justice. It should come as no surprise that the question of whether businesses should have human rights obligations is one that resonates widely and personally. The impetus for positive law in this area often stems from a very universally human sense of morality. Corporations are actors in society, they are very powerful actors in society and they have a huge potential to, to impact positively on the realisation of rights. We know that they themselves create employment, they themselves are involved often in some areas, they're the only space in which uh, people have access to services. Big mining companies may set up hospitals and, and schools because that's the only place in which their workers can utilise those services. And we should think about very carefully what we expect of them as social actors. It seems to me we expect even of individuals that they do certain positive things to help. If a starving woman approaches a wealthy individual, we regard there as being some obligation on that individual in relation to that starving woman, even if it's a systemic obligation to contribute to institutions that don't allow the woman to starve. Why should corporations have less obligations than individuals? Doesn't make sense to me as powerful conglomerate entities which are, accumulate large amounts of wealth and power, they should also actively contribute to the societies in which they operate. David's solution is an international treaty on human rights in relation to business. But businesses and corporations aren't entirely free of human rights obligations at the moment. David, what instruments are already in place? The current framework at the UN level essentially focuses on the question of avoiding harm. But it seems to me that that lowers our expectations too much of corporations. There need to be many prongs that have to address them. Uh, and already there have been some to try and move towards more voluntary compliance by some uh, um, corporations. So there have been uh, initiatives set up, uh, like the Global Compact, where corporations sign up to this major statement of principles around committing themselves not to violate rights. That helps create internal shifts within corporate structures. Those are very important, of course, and we should continue to focus on changing the way in which business is done. David would argue that, 
Even within these existing frameworks, the obligations upon business are limited. Why would we then need a rights-based approach to business? In relation to fundamental rights, um, it isn't something that's a voluntary. If I have a right to life, we don't say that, well, someone has a right to choose whether or not to respect my right or not, okay, or an obligation that is just something that we decide whether we like it or not. It's something that actually binds people. And it seems to me that from the very idea of fundamental rights, we have some notion that there's something that's necessary to hardly hold people accountable in law. Remember, this global world of business is relatively recent. It's not something that has occurred for eons. And so trade across borders, etc., is something which has actually has raised its own challenges. And the legal framework hasn't necessarily been there to address those kinds of challenges. Law matters because it enables uh, corporations to be brought into court uh, to, for access to remedies to be provided. And also, um, we need to address this in law because there are actual legal loopholes that have been created in the international system. And that is the key issue, I think, which a treaty would address, that in fact... Um, a treaty is meant to plug and deal with the gaps that have existed in international law in relation to corporations. So maybe a treaty would help deal with this. Okay, some background here. Currently in domestic courts, like the UK Supreme Court, human rights claims generally involve suing the state. So businesses can be held accountable indirectly in this way. Victims can sue a state, say, for not regulating a business, or failing to monitor health and safety violations. But it is harder for victims to win in these cases when they are up against the state. Businesses can be sued in some countries if they are found to serve a public function or to meet some other similar test. However, these tests don't exist in every country. David's proposal would be clear about the need for businesses to comply with human rights and could give victims an easier way to pursue their claims. So what is the process for getting a treaty adopted and what progress has been made? In the international law field would be something that would be agreed to probably by different states all coming together and saying globally we expect corporations to follow certain fundamental rights standards and setting those standards and then placing mechanisms for holding corporations to account where they violate those standards. That could occur in different ways. On the one hand, it could be done by states taking those standards and enforcing them within their own environments, or it could happen that there be a body of some kind, a global court, a global adjudicative body, that actually makes decisions about corporations where they violate rights. We've already started and embarked upon that process. In June 2014, 20 states, the majority, passed a resolution to form an intergovernmental working group which is the first step towards such a treaty. What will happen is there will need to be a debate as to the framework, what the treaty is going to look like, what matters will be covered, and all those kinds of issues will be debated by the states. Hopefully there will be an opportunity for NGOs, civil society to take part. From that point, we hope that we'll see states entering into a stronger negotiation phase and eventually passing such a treaty. There are obviously a lot of interests at stake here national governments, business owners, workers, and a treaty on human rights for business may get a mixed reception. Okay, so who's against it? And 
What does that mean for the adoption of an international treaty on this topic? Well, there are many. Of course, there's a lot of self-interest by the business community in avoiding hard regulation. And also, sadly, what we see is a lot of uh, self-interest on the part of developed states like the United States and European states in standing in the way of such a treaty. And I do not understand why these states are opposing it. It seems to me that if they claim to protect fundamental rights, they should be advocates for the treaty, not opponents of it. But important issue that's now going to be on the table is how to try and draw some of these developed countries into the process. If they refuse to be drawn into that process, well, maybe developing countries and some of the really big industrializing countries at the moment, like India and China, who already are supportive of this initiative, will agree to these standards. And de facto, it's going to be very hard to ignore them. So I think it seems to me probably advisable for Europe and the United States to get in with the process of drafting this treaty, hopefully not obstructing it, and so that we can actually create a truly global document. Does this proposal make David a popular guy with business? Look, it depends really on... Uh, which businesses. We shouldn't get into a, a, a state where we think all businesses are opposed to fundamental rights. A lot of business people I meet, they don't want to harm people. They don't want to harm the environment. They want to follow their obligations. I think we should convince business that this is both in their interests, but also something that as individual people, they actually respect and value. After all, business people want their human rights respected. So why wouldn't they respect the rights of anyone else? David makes a good point here. It's easy to assume that businesses would be opposed to uh, more encompassing human rights obligations, which could then open the door to greater regulation. But that's really only one part of the story. As David has already said, businesses often provide for social needs. For example, sometimes they build schools and provide communities with medical care, often at their own great expense. At the same time, there's clearly a need for standards to avoid, as David will tell us, a race to the bottom when it comes to rights. What do businesses get out of a treaty on business and human rights? How can they benefit? The first thing is that what's in it for business is that all the people who they engage with should be treated decently and that we create a global standardised system of what the values and entitlements are that individuals can expect and what the rules are through which they operate. Through doing that, what we'll find is that corporations which actually respect fundamental rights will not be competing in relation to corporations who don't respect fundamental rights. And so it seems to me that one of the things we should take off the table is the possibility that people can actually have a race to the bottom by violating fundamental rights of individuals. And so it seems to me that that is a major benefit for corporations as well, that there will be stable expectations in this field. If businesses have to comply with rights, should they also benefit from human rights? Do businesses have human rights too? I'm prepared to accept a notion of corporate rights, provided that the focus of that is on protecting the natural persons underlying it and not creating some sort of monster that some of the United States judgments have sought to do. And if we do that, then the notion of corporate rights may make some sense. In a moment, we'll hear about this so-called monster those US judgments and court decisions elsewhere that have given corporations the ability to claim protections from human rights.
Let's explore what happens when businesses claim certain rights. Some familiar examples come from the United States, where businesses in recent years have claimed rights under the U.S. Constitution and other statutory laws. In 2014, the Supreme Court of the United States heard a case concerning Hobby Lobby, a national chain of arts and crafts stores, and whether the company had a right to the free exercise of religion. We sat down with Carl Laird, a lecturer in law at St. Edmund Hall, Oxford, to find out about how businesses have benefited from human rights in the United States and in Europe. Carl knows these decisions inside out and has closely watched the development of this issue over the course of his professional career. Carl, can you tell us a bit more about the Hobby Lobby case? So the origins of the case really lie in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which was passed by the United States Congress uh, a couple of years ago. And the aim of the legislation was to address the problem in the US that a lot of citizens don't have access to health care. And one of the means of addressing that problem was to facilitate private individuals obtaining private health insurance. And one of the stipulations of the law is that companies, employers, they have to facilitate their employees having access to health insurance. And one of the provisions of Obamacare, as it became known, was that employees also ought to have access to contraception as well. So corporations have to provide their employees with private health insurance, and that private health insurance has to include access to contraceptives. The Hobby Lobby Corporation and a number of others, and these, what these corporations have in common is that they're all owned by people with um, certain religious views. Um, Hobby Lobby took the lead case. It objected to this provision in the legislation because it argued that it infringed its right under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's important to bear in mind that this wasn't a claim based on the Constitution. This was a claim based on statute. So the corporation argued that by requiring it to facilitate access to contraception, that it violated its rights under this statute. So the question really for the Supreme Court was whether a corporation could benefit from the protections afforded by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And what did the court decide in this case? The court split 5-4, so Justice Alito delivered the majority judgment, and he said that Congress's intention when it passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was to provide broad protection to religious liberty, and as such that encompassed protection being afforded to uh, corporations. So taking a step back to look at the big picture now, what does this decision mean for the balance between burdens and benefits of human rights law for businesses? So it's not just human beings that are burdened by the law that also have its benefits sometimes, but corporations, companies, limited liability partnerships, they can also be burdened by the law as well. So paying tax, claims of negligence, these can all be brought against companies as well as individuals, which makes sense given how pervasive companies are in everyday life. And they have a, a unique capacity to cause harm, so they ought to be burdened in this way. The question is, should they ought to benefit from the protections afforded by bills of rights or constitutions or statutes that are designed or intended to protect religious freedom? That's a much more difficult question. And that's one the US Supreme Court has answered very much in the affirmative. 
The Hobby Lobby case involved a right to religious freedom, but this certainly hasn't been the only recent U.S. Supreme Court case dealing with rights for business. Where else have these issues come up? Well, where this has arisen recently and most prominently and very contentiously is in the context of campaign finance. So the Citizens United case concerned whether Congress could pass legislation that restricted the amount of money that corporations could spend financing campaigns. And again, the prior question in that case was, well, can corporations claim the benefit of the Bill of Rights? And the majority, again, it was a 5-4 decision, the majority in that case, this time the judgment was written by Justice Kennedy, decided that corporations could claim the benefit of the Bill of Rights. And what seems to have been on the majority's mind in that case is that individuals might choose to exercise their freedom of expression via a corporation. Although these American cases have been fairly high profile, the reality is that the debate around whether businesses have human rights has made its way into courts worldwide. For example, these cases also come up in Europe. These cases tend to concern tobacco companies, and as there is greater awareness of the problems that smoking can cause, governments have sought to limit in law the ability of tobacco companies to advertise. So, for example, the most recent proposal in this jurisdiction is to have plain packaging. So a packet of cigarettes would simply be a white box. There would be no advertising on it whatsoever. So as the restrictions on tobacco advertising have increased, tobacco companies have sought to resist this. And one of the means that they've sought to resist this is by relying upon Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights freedom of expression. So tobacco companies argue that these restrictions on advertising infringes their right to freedom of expression. Rather surprisingly, some might say, the European Court of Human Rights actually has been very willing to entertain claims by legal entities, by corporations. And although these corporations tend to fail because the infringement falls within Article 10.2, so it's a proportionate interference with the right, given the interest of the state in promoting the health of its citizens. Again, some might find it surprising that the ECHR entertains these claims in the first place. Are there other rights that businesses can or do claim under the European Convention? The European Court of Human Rights delivered quite an important judgment involving a Russian oil company. And this Russian oil company was alleged to have been run by opponents to the Putin government. And their allegation was that the government, in trying to put them out of business effectively, it levied huge taxes and fines on this particular oil company. So what had been a multi-billion dollar oil company, one day, a few months later, was put out of business effectively because of these fines and these taxes. And one of the claims that it made was that these taxes were imposed in a way that infringed their right to a fair hearing. The ECHR agreed that there had been a violation of the corporation's Article 6 right and gave judgment for the old company and it required the Russian state to pay a huge amount in damages. So they really succeeded under Article 6. But it's interesting, again, because Although you might think prima facie there are certain rights that simply a corporation couldn't invoke, actually with some creative lawyering, potentially the whole panoply of rights could be relied upon by a corporation. So what's the answer? Should the European court and others make it clear that human rights should not apply to corporations? I think that would be problematic because it would be undoing a thread of case law that has been developing for quite some time. 
but I'm not sure if this is just a criticism of the ECHR in general. I think the issue with these cases is that the European Court of Human Rights doesn't articulate the extent to which corporations can invoke the protection of the Convention in comparison to individuals. So the question is, should a different approach apply when a corporation invokes a human rights provision as opposed to when an individual does? So what Carl is telling us is this. Courts need to figure out which human rights apply to businesses and which don't. Should a business really be able to say that it has a right to a family life or a right to vote? At the moment, court decisions leave the door open to these kinds of claims. As Carl tells us, courts need to close the door if their decisions are to send a clear and consistent message. Maybe, in a globalized world, there's still a need for a treaty to clarify business obligations. At least, that's what David Bilchitz argued earlier. We asked Carl what he thought about the argument for an international treaty on business and human rights. That argument would have more validity, I would say, if there was a particular convention that burdened companies exclusively. So yes, I think I would agree with that. And in this jurisdiction, the Human Rights Act does extend to some corporations if they're fulfilling functions of a public nature. So domestically in England and Wales, human rights claims can be brought against corporations. But of course, that's not true in every jurisdiction. And perhaps a treaty would, would fill that vacuum. Carl has clearly illustrated some examples, both in Europe and the United States, where businesses have benefited from human rights. So how can we make sense of the tension between the benefits and burdens of human rights for business? Do recent court decisions in the US and Europe illustrate a pressing need for greater clarity on what rights businesses can claim and what rights they should be obligated to uphold? Or do they point to a growing consensus that businesses deserve the protection of human rights law, perhaps without the concurrent responsibility? In a moment, we'll draw these threads together. Here's one perspective on business and human rights, and a few questions. In a world of capital flows, multinational companies, and questionable conduct by those companies, such as tax avoidance, there's arguably a need for more accountability for business. The framework in place at the moment is the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, or the Ruggie Principles. Harvard professor John Ruggie presented these in 2011, and they were endorsed by the United Nations Human Rights Council. The Ruggie Principles reiterated that states have the primary duties to protect human rights, and encouraged states to set out clearly the expectation that businesses comply with human rights. The Principles also talked about a corporate responsibility to protect human rights. But the Ruggie Principles created no new international law obligations, and many regarded them as weak. A Human Rights Watch document said the following about the Ruggie Principles. While the guiding principles do mark progress in some areas, they also underscore the failure of the current approach to business and human rights issues, one that is driven by weak government action and undue deference to the prerogatives of business. Human Rights Watch went on to say, while the principles provide some useful guidance to businesses interested in behaving responsibly, they also represent a woefully inadequate approach to business and human rights issues. That is because without any mechanism to ensure compliance or to measure implementation, they cannot actually require companies to do anything at all. Companies can reject the principles altogether without consequence or publicly embrace them while doing absolutely nothing to put them into practice. 
the principles do not explicitly insist that governments regulate companies with the requisite scope and rigor. They also fail to push governments hard enough to ensure that companies respect human rights. For all the progress they represent in some areas, the guiding principles may actually help entrench a dominant paradigm among companies and many governments, which derides the rules and regulations that companies need in favor of voluntary and largely unenforceable commitments that simply don't do nearly enough to protect human rights. So a treaty on business and human rights of the kind that David has proposed might redress this woefully inadequate approach to business and human rights issues. It could secure more robust compliance with human rights and end what Human Rights Watch described as the undue deference that is currently paid to the prerogatives of business. However, there are some arguments pointing in the other direction. Advocates of human rights should consider the following before offering their unflinching support to David's proposal. First, in a world where we have a proliferation of international agreements and treaties, is it a good thing to have another international treaty? Some would say that depends on what's in the treaty. If the treaty contains important content, then of course that treaty should be drafted. But could another piece of paper that isn't respected globally undermine the status of international law as a whole? Could it create just another smokescreen for business? Secondly, could a treaty on business and human rights create confusion about who owes human rights duties? It's always been thought that states owe human rights duties to citizens. And this problem isn't just theoretical. A treaty on business and human rights might take the pressure off states to regulate business. They might be able to point at a treaty and say, the responsibility lies on businesses, not states. Thirdly, would a treaty on business and human rights lead to businesses being more keen on claiming human rights? To put this question another way, if businesses have greater or clearer legal responsibilities in this treaty, will businesses want the flip side of those burdens and argue that they should also deserve to benefit more from human rights? This brings us to what Carl Laird told us about businesses drawing on human rights. It seems clear that as businesses claim human rights with increasing regularity, courts will have to be more careful about which rights extend to business, which don't, and why. And there's a good argument that human rights law is going in the wrong direction if it continues to allow businesses to claim human rights as they have done in the United States Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights. It could be said that human rights are designed to protect the powerless and the vulnerable, and that they are being distorted in these courts. On the other hand though, aren't human rights meant to be universal? Isn't it consistent with legal tradition for both natural and legal persons, including companies, to claim the protection of human rights? Some experts we've spoken to have also suggested there might be a practical benefit that comes from allowing businesses to claim human rights. The argument goes like this. Often litigation isn't brought on human rights issues. Legal aid is restrictive, and those people bringing litigation lack financial resources. So perhaps allowing businesses to bring human rights claims is valuable because it creates more law on the meaning of human rights, law that in future might be used to help the powerless and the vulnerable. Some businesses would say, in the end, that a treaty requiring them to comply with specific human rights duties is a theoretical confusion, some kind of monster. Others would say, as David has, that businesses claiming human rights are a kind of monster. We don't want to take a position in this debate. What we do know is that business and human rights is an important emerging issue, and judges, lawyers, activists, academics, and businesses themselves need to figure out where they stand if we are to have a system of human rights protection that is coherent and meaningful. Rights Up is produced with support from the Oxford Human Rights Hub, providing global perspectives on human rights, and the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, 
a University of Oxford initiative that seeks to stimulate and support interdisciplinary research. Special thanks to Sandy Fredman, Tom Peach, and our guests. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Kira Ullman, Max Harris, and Laura Hilly. The music for this episode was written and performed by Rosemary Ullman.